Welcome to From Beneath the Hollywood Sign. If you love old movies, Hollywood history, or the golden age of filmmaking, you've come to the right place. This is the podcast that talks about amazing stories of Tinseltown from another era and fascinating conversations with writer-producer Steve Kubine and actress-writer Nan McNamara. So, Steve, did Ava Gardner and Howard Hughes have a good relationship? Well, they did until he dislocated her jaw. What? Well, don't worry. She hit him back with an ashtray. From Beneath the Hollywood Sign is the gin joint for you. All you need is a few minutes to start your day off with something historic when you listen to the This Day in History podcast. Every day there's a new episode for you to listen and learn about what happened that day way back when. So listen and subscribe to This Day in History wherever you get your podcasts. That's This Day in History wherever you get your podcasts. On this episode of Most Notorious... The Life and Times of Calamity Jane. She used to go to the edge of town when she was in Deadwood um, in the evenings and crack her bullwhip. And people would sort of gather around her and newcomers would say, who is that man with that bullwhip? And people would go, that ain't no man, that's Calamity Jane. Hello everyone, this is Eric Rivenis, and welcome to another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast. Of all of the colorful figures associated with the Old West, Calamity Jane ranks right up there at the top. The story of her relationship with Wild Bill Hickok, especially, has been told and retold with varying degrees of accuracy. Her life was the very definition of embellishment both through stories told by others about her and stories told by her about her. So let's cut through the fog of history and discover who the real Calamity Jane was. All right, let's begin. So great to have as my guest today, Linda Jacoby. She is a former journalist and a college instructor, and she is also the author of Searching for Calamity, The Life and Times of Calamity Jane. So appreciate you joining me today. Well, thanks very much. So what drew you initially to Calamity Jane as the subject of a book? Well, um, to start with, I've always, even as a little kid, um, loved the West. Um, I have old photographs of myself from when I was like four or five years old wearing my Hopalong Cassidy guns. So I've always been drawn to the West, and I have always, always been drawn to women who didn't have any regard for the rules regarding women. Um, so she was kind of a um, a natural person, you know, for me to take a good look at because she combined all my favorite interests. Um, and actually, I had, like most people had always heard her name as I was growing up, but I never actually knew that she was a real person. And I was in, um, I've always gone out, I live on the East Coast, but I've always gone out West for vacations. Um, And I was flipping through some postcards 
um, in Tombstone, Arizona, um, outside the OK Corral. And I saw a picture of what looked like what I thought was a young guy. And I turned it over, and it was Calamity Jane. Um, and she sort of captured me at that moment. Um, and that's when I started, you know, really trying to understand her um, and learn about her life. There's a lot of mythology around Calamity Jane, much of it perpetuated by the woman herself. Was it difficult in your research to separate fact from fiction? It was incredibly difficult. Um, I think, you know, anybody writing about the Old West runs into the general problem that there was kind of a complete reality fantasy breakdown there. And at the time, for example, when Deadwood was booming around 1876, there were, you know, lots of made-up stories, you know, coming out of Deadwood. Um, And so even newspaper reports um, from the time aren't very accurate. And with Calamity in particular, there's a tremendous challenge in trying to sift out what's true, you know, from what the stories are. As you said, um, she was great at creating stories about herself. I always think of her as if she were alive now, she would have a YouTube channel. She was, you know, fantastic at self-promotion, and she actually, she was illiterate, but she dictated a pamphlet um, to a PR guy in 1896, what she called her autobiography when she was getting ready to um, do a tour of dime museums. And it was um, something that was pretty, it was pretty common for performers to dictate these, you know, fake autobiographies about themselves. Um, And the stories that she told in there sort of became the stories that people accepted about her as true. So that was one big problem. Um, Another problem was that since she was famous, everybody, you know, wanted to say that they knew her or had memories about her. Um, In many cases, there were people, you know, who had never even met her. Um, So you have to kind of sift that out. Then there were the newspaper reporters who weren't always tied into accuracy about what they said. So that was another challenge. And then there is the additional challenge that um, as her name became known, other women would use her name. Um, so if a woman was arrested, you know, someplace, let's say in Wyoming for being drunk and disorderly, she'd be hauled in to the sheriff's office and they'd ask for a name and she'd say it was Calamity Jane. Um, or there are people, there were, for example, a couple of uh, guys in Spokane, Washington, who after Calamity died, um, gave an interview with the newspaper saying, oh, we remember when she was out here, you know, blah, 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 blah. She was never there. Um, and it could be that they completely made it up, but it's also very likely that there was somebody there who said her name was Calamity Jane because lots of women said that that was their name. So it was um, a, it was a tremendous challenge, but also, you know, a lot of fun trying to sift sift out what was accurate. And there are also huge periods of her life where there's absolutely nothing about her. 
um, because she spent a lot of her life wandering around through the West. And it, a newspaper might say Calamity Jane's in town, um, but apart from that, you know, there was, you know, nothing. So yeah, it's the, that that was definitely the big, you know, the big challenge. What was Calamity Jane's real name? Uh, when and where was she born? Um, her name was Martha Canary. She was actually born in Princeton, Missouri, um, probably in 1852. She says she was born in 1852. There's information uh, in 1864 where somebody identifies her as being 12, um, but there, there was a, some conflict, conflicting information, but it was a, around a, 1852. So she was born in Princeton, and she had... Her father was a farmer, and her mother was sort of a ne'er-do-well, um, had a reputation as a ne'er-do-well, and was an alcoholic, as Calamity also became. And she had at least one sister and one brother. She says she had um, five siblings, and it's possible that the other three, you know, died in childhood because that was, you know, quite common. Um, and then her, in 1864, her family left and migrated west on the Oregon Trail and ended up in Virginia City, Montana. And that's how she made it to the west. And according to her, that was the first big adventure in her life, taking the Oregon Trail. So life was hard for her, of course, growing up. It was ex- it was extremely hard. I mean, one of the things that I admire about Calamity is she could take the hardness of her life and make it feel like an adventure. Um, so she'll, um, if you read Oregon Trail journals, um, you know, written by women who kept them at the time as they were traveling west, the trip was was awful. Um, the weather, the rain, the sleet. Um, you know, slogging through mud, getting across streams and rivers, uh, foraging for fuel to cook. There was so much illness. But for Calamity, as she writes about it, um, and I think as, as she felt about it, it was an incredible adventure, you know, going out hunting, you know, getting across the rivers, lo- lowering the covered wagons down over sides of cliffs, but it was extremely hard. And then her mother died the next year. Um, and actually, there's an article in a Virginia City, Montana newspaper from 1864, the year her family arrived there, talking about three little girls who were going door to door or tent to tent um, begging food, and they and they said their name was Canary, and the oldest one was twelve, which would have been calamity. So, you can get a sense from that how desperate she was as a child. Her mo- her mother died the next year, and her father took her and her two siblings um, to t- Salt Lake City, um, and then he died two years later. So by the time she was 15, she was on her own and briefly responsible for her two siblings. She apparently 
left them with families somewhere and, you know, and, and took off to the West. Um, and that was what her whole life was like, really, just kind of wandering and surviving, except for her, her few moments of glory um, as a Western character. Much of her mythology is, is based on her dressing like a man, acting like a man. What is the first account of her dressing like that? Was there a particular moment when this identity was solidified? Well, by the time she came to Deadwood on July 15, 1876, when she was 24, she was already a famous character because she actually, um, well, I'll get back to that story, but uh, when she arrived in Deadwood, um, the Deadwood newspaper had a headline, Calamity Jane Has Arrived. So she was known by then by her name. The year previously, she had... Um, actually been with the Jenny expedition that had been sent by the federal government to figure out how much gold was in the Black Hills and to also start mapping the Black Hills because the Black Hills are actually part of Sioux territory. The United States had given the land to the Sioux in the Treaty of Fort Laramie in 1868. But of course, now that gold was discovered, they were you know, eager to take the land back. And the government had sent the Jenny expedition out there, and Calamity actually joined up as a mule driver carrying supplies. So she had to be, had been dressed as a man then, looked like a man because women weren't allowed, they weren't allowed to join the army, obviously, and they weren't allowed to participate in any way in that kind of endeavor. And there's actually a photograph of her from... 1875 with the Jenny expedition um, and she's resting against a rock and looks like a man. So, you know, definitely by then, but that's, that's the earliest that it's possible to, you know, to, to say for sure that she was, was passing as a man because there's just not, you know, earlier, earlier information, but she does say in her autobiography, true or not, that, when she was on the Oregon Trail, she always spent her time with the men, you know, hunting. So, you know, probably even then, there, if you were a female at that time and your choice was between being a woman or being a man when you grew up, it, there wasn't much of an option because men had all the opportunity and freedom um, and women were pretty confined and I give her a lot of credit for um, you know recognizing that early on and and doing it you know but you can't say for sure before 1875 because there's just you know nothing there. She didn't try to hide the fact that she was a woman though right she went by the name Jane. Well for the couple of times when she was associated with milita- with the military, whether it was with the Jenny expedition or later when she was driving a mule wagon with supplies for General Crook in 1876, she had to pass as a man um, because she would have been, you know, kicked off. But she didn't go to any lengths to hide, you know, to hide the fact that, you know, that she was a woman. Um, and everybody around her, 
knew that she was. They just didn't want, you know, the people with authority um, to know to know that she was. So no, she never. Um, for example, there were there were women soldiers in the Civil War, and they had to go to great lengths to disguise the fact that they were women, you know, so they wouldn't get kicked out of the army, and they would, you know, dress in private. They would never go to military doctors, and Calamity never did anything like that um, because she didn't, you know, she just didn't care. So. Yeah, she she didn't go to any lengths, to, you know, to hide, to hide the fact that she was a woman. And apart from those two instances, she she was just, you know, who who she was. When you look at photographs of her and and a number of her, she loved having her photograph taken. And she would, you know, go to photographic studios and get costumed up. And in some of them, she's costumed as a woman. Um, but in many of them, you know, she looks like a male gunfighter or a male scout. But no, she just she she didn't care. Um, she was just who who she was. I know there is some debate on how she got her nickname, Calamity Jane. Right. <laughs> can, can you tell us what you believe is the origin of that name? She says that she got her name from a. Uh, Colonel Egan, um, when she rescued him um, in an Indian battle, and that's com- completely fa- fabricated. And there's a lot of debate about whether you know she got her name um, because she caused people to fall into calamity, or because she rescued them from calamity. And my own opinion is it was kind of a combination of both. But apart from that one story about her rescuing Egan and him, you know, naming her um, Calamity Jane because she had saved him from Calamity. Um, there aren't specific stories about um, how she got how she got the name. Now, of course, I mean, everybody in the West had nick- nicknames, you know, Wild Bill Hickok. It, and it's a, one of the things that I think everybody would love to know, like, where did that name come from? Um but it, it's, I think, one of the many things about her, you know, that will forever remain unknown for sure. But it is the perfect name for her. She definitely, you know, wouldn't be famous with a, diff- with a different kind of nickname. I think probably for most of us, we know Calamity Jane from the HBO series Deadwood. Right. <laughs> that, that's my guess. In that show, we are led to believe that she and Wild Bill Hickok were friends, close friends. But history shows something different. Would you tell us about the real story behind how they met and what their relationship really was? Absolutely. Um, Wild Bill Hickok was uh, coming to Deadwood in the summer of 1876. He had recently gotten married, um, and he had married a woman who had been previously married and had owned a circus with her husband, um, and her husband died. Um, and she wanted to go on performing and owning the circus, but Wild Bill Hickok um, had said to her, no, you know, it's. I just want you to, you know, be my wife, and I'll, you know, take care of you. So um, he loved to gamble, and he went with a small group of people and um, to, he- to head for Deadwood. Um, and when he got to Fort... Fort Laramie in Wyoming on the way, 
the people at the fort told him two things. One was you have to get together a group of about 100 people to go because the Indians were attacking smaller groups. And the second thing was um, we have a, this woman in, in the guardhouse who was arrested for being drunk and disorderly and get her off our hands and take her with you. Um, and that was Calamity Jane. So that's how they met. Hickok and his friends, you know, got her from from the guardhouse and uh she rode with them and the rest and the rest of the group they got together to Deadwood. Um and I consider that actually the luckiest moment of Calamity's life because without Deadwood she would never have become, you know, this sort of eternal myth um that she's you know, that, that she has become. Um so she was with him on the trip to Deadwood and he apparently um didn't pay much attention to her. He did he wasn't a big talker to start with anyway and he liked to drink a lot. Um and he'd get up in the morning and drink and then do some target practice and then go off continuing their trip. But she always um you know had a thing about him and you know thought he was um extremely dashing. Um so they knew each other the trip there, um, which lasted a couple of weeks, but they definitely, you know, weren't close. Um, although she was apparently a big hit on the trip because people love to sit around the campfire at night, and listen to her tell stories. Um, and then when they got to Deadwood, Hickok and this group that he was with um, set up camp outside of town, and Calamity went into town and got a room somewhere, but would go would go back to the camp and, you know, kind of hung around uh, with Hickok, but he never paid her much attention. Then two weeks, just about two weeks after they arrived, he arrived in Deadwood on August 2nd, um, 1876. He was killed at Saloon um, Number 10. And Calamity claims that when he was shot, she was in town and she went, you know, rushing out um, of of her room when she heard he was shot and cornered the assassin in a butcher shop and picked up a big butcher knife, you know, and, and held him, in, you know, until he was um, taken away, uh, which is not true. The, um, he, Jack McCall was captured in, in a butcher shop, but Calamity was nowhere around. So it was Calamity who created the story about her and Hickok. And supposedly, and I kind of actually believe this, um, at his funeral, um, she picked up a small wildflower that was growing and tossed it, you know, um, into his grave, um, which was, you know, kind of a nice moment. And within less than two years, um, there was a melodrama being performed in various theaters around the country, on, on stage around the country, um, called the Drama of Life in the Black Hills. And it includes a scene of when Hickok is shot and Calamity comes running into the saloon and kneels over his body, you know, weeping and um, professing her love for him. Um, so the myth just got out there all over the country, you know, immediately. And she always played on it. She had the last photograph she ever had taken in her life 
um, which was a couple of weeks before she died. She, she was standing in front of Hickok's grave at Mount Moriah Cemetery in Deadwood, you know, hold, holding a flower. And it's certainly, you know, it's a myth that has persisted. I don't know if you ever saw the old Doris Day movie, Calamity Jane, um, from the 1940s, but the movie is so much about Calamity Jane's love for Wild Bill Hickok, and there's a scene in the movie where Doris Day transforms from being the male Calamity into a female Calamity and becomes very feminine, which she does, you know, she does for Hickok, you know, so he'll be as attracted to her as as she is to him. So it's, you know, it's one of these just incredible, oh, and in 1941, on Mother's Day, a woman named Jean Hickok, and I can't, McCormick, uh, went on a radio show and said she was the daughter of Wild Bill Hickok and Calamity Jane, and uh, started reading from these letters that she sent, said that Calamity had written her towards the end of Calamity's life, talking about how much she missed her, and she regretted having given given her away, you know, an adoption when she was a baby. Well, of course, Calamity, you know, was illiterate um, and could, couldn't possibly have written these letters, and it turned out that this woman, Jean McCormick, was born 10 years after Wild Bill Hickok died. But it just shows the persistence of the myth, you know, in people's minds. And it was something that, you know, cl- that Calamity created and everybody picked up on. Um, so it's it's kind of a great story, even though it's completely untrue. But, but she was near Hickok. She did join the search for Jack McCall. There was a foundation for her stories. Oh, ab- absolutely. I mean, she she did. She obviously had, you know, a, a huge attraction to him. Um, and I don't think he would, you know, he didn't give her the time of day. But she did have an enormous attraction to him, and she was there when he was killed. And she did accompany him on, on the trip from Fort Laramie, you know, to Deadwood. So it's not, I, they, you know, they were in the same place at, at the same time. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> so she's 24 years old, and she suddenly becomes a celebrity after this. Melodramas are performed about her, like you said, with her as a character. What does she do with this? Was she able to capitalize on her newfound fame? Well, she didn't start really capitalizing on it until 1896. Um, She stayed in Deadwood for a couple of years when she first came in 1876. And then, you know, she just wandered through the West. And, you know, did, she did work as a bullwhacker, um, part of the time. And then she did things like, you know, had a laundry or she would have a roadside house where, where people would stay. I think she's probably occasionally worked as a prostitute. And, but mostly she just went from, you know, town to town, picking up odd jobs, drinking. But in 1895, she, I think, realized that so many people, so many of the characters from the Old West were making money because they were characters from the Old West. I mean, the Old West was essentially gone by then, but 
she um, went to a portrait studio in Montana in 1895 and had had a photograph taken of her, you know, dressed um, in buckskins and, you know, looking like a man. Um, and she started selling her photograph um, and that was, or she'd sell her photograph or barter it for drinks um, and started making money from her, her fame. And she went back to Deadwood and somebody from the um, Cole and Middleton Dime Museums, which were, Dime Museums were, they were museums with all kinds of odd exhibits in them. But somebody from a, from a string of museums owned by these two guys, Cole and Middleton, came out there and signed her to a contract um, to appear in four museums in 1896 um, in Minneapolis, Chicago, Philadelphia, and New York. And that's when she dictated her autobiography to this guy who I'm sure also, you know, embellished it on top of her dictation. And she really got prepared, you know, for her performance got new clothes, bought new boots, which she apparently never paid for, went out and practiced shooting, even though she was just going to be up on on stage, and really learned to recite her autobiography pretty much by heart. And so that's when she did her first real on-stage performances. Um, she took the train to Minneapolis in 1896 and appeared on stage and was apparently fairly drunk a lot of the time, and then went to Chicago and probably performed there also. And after that, um, there's no record of what happened, but most likely um, she never showed up in Philadelphia or New York because there's absolutely no advertisements from the Times, no rep- uh, from that period, um, no reporting on it, and gradually started to make her make her way back what West, so she was kind of, you know, a failure on the big stage. But what she learned from that was that she could support herself by selling her story. So she started going through the West, selling her autobiographical pamphlet and selling photographs of herself. And her favorite place to go was Yellowstone National Park. And there's a incredible photograph of her um, taken by this man named Burton Holmes in 1896 of Calamity standing outside this big uh, tent, which was actually a a restaurant um, in the park in 1896, wearing this long dress, you know, holding um, her pamphlets and her photographs, talking to a man and a little kid. And it is the most wonderful photograph of her. She's smiling. She looks at, you know, at ease, which she usually doesn't in her photographs. But that that's how she supported herself for the remainder of her life. Um, just, you know, selling her picture, selling her photographs, and selling her autobiographical pamphlet. And now, a quick word from our sponsor. The storm broke in Chattanooga one night in 1906, when a young woman was the victim of a violent crime. From that moment, the city knew no peace for four furious years. At the center of the storm was the notorious inmate, Dave Edwards, who was awaiting trial on murder charges. After a high-profile case threatened to go cold, the desperate county sheriff did the unthinkable by freeing Dave Edwards from jail and deputizing him to track down the fugitive. 
Grievous Deeds, Four Years of Fury in Chattanooga, Tennessee, written by Kimberly Tilly, narrated by Samuel Burst, is the most amazing true crime story you've never heard. Listen to Grievous Deeds, the audiobook, available on Audible, iTunes, and Amazon. When Johann Rahl received the letter on Christmas Day, 1776, he put it away to read later. Maybe he thought it was a season's greeting and wanted to save it for the fireside. But what it actually was, was a warning, delivered to the Hessian colonel, letting him know that General George Washington was crossing the Delaware and would soon attack his forces. The next day, when Rawl lost the Battle of Trenton and died from two Colonial Boxing Day musket balls, the letter was found, unopened in his vest pocket. As someone with 15,000 unread emails in his inbox, I feel like there's a lesson there. Oh well, this is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Every episode, we look at the bad ideas, mistakes, and accidents that misshaped our world. Find us at constantpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Everybody, shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. Yeah. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. And now back to the show. Well, here's some of the more outrageous stories that she claimed really happened. <laughs> oh, well, um, <laughs> there are many. Um, there are um, stories about her. Um, she likes to talk about when she uh, rescued the Deadwood stagecoach stage that had been attacked by Indians. And the Indians had, had killed the driver. And for some reason, I don't know where she appeared from because she never quite says, um, but she, you know, leaped onto the driver's seat in the stagecoach and there were seven passengers inside and she raced away and, you know, and brought it to safety. Um, so that, that's a fabulous story. And I think, um, um, Buffalo Bill Cody uh, sort of repeat, repeated it in, in his Wild West show. And then there's, you know, lots of stories about her fighting the Indians, you know, going with Custer to Arizona. She never was in Arizona. And and fighting the Indians there and, and fighting with General Crook. Um, she was according... Oh, and racing 90 miles with important messages from General Crook crook you know to take back to the fort and swimming across this a raging river you know carrying these uh dispatches um and being cold and wet and sick when you know when she when she arrived at the fort with essential messages so she she loved to aggrandize herself in those ways they're great they, they are great stories calamity 
she was, I mean, the West was so full of adventure, you know, back in the 1870s. And she just always would place herself in the middle of, in the middle of the events. I'm surprised that she's never described herself as the sole survivor of Custer's last stand. <laughs> right. <laughs> she was pretty handy with a bullwhip, wasn't she? She was a fantastic bullwhacker, and it is a great art. Um, if you've ever seen a bullwhip, they're like 16 feet long, and she was good. And there's stories about her, which I actually believe, um, because they're told by enough different people, of her bullwhacking skill. She used to go to the edge of town in, when she was in Deadwood um, in the evenings and crack her bullwhip. And people would sort of gather around her and newcomers would say, who is that man with that bullwhip? And people would go, that ain't no man, that's Calamity Jane. Um, and there's a, a story that I love about um, some bullwhacker. Um, and, you know, bulls were enormous. There was a bullwhacker um, whose bull team and, and wagon got stuck in the mud, you know, on Main Street in Deadwood, which was, you know, just a bunch of mud, um, and he couldn't get them to move. And Calamity made a bet with the guy that, you know, she, she could get the bulls to start moving and, you know, pull the, pull the wagons out of the mud. So he agreed, and she, you know, got into the driver's seat, you know, picked up the bull whip, and, you know, within two minutes um, had them, you know, pulling the wagon out of the mud. She was a great bullwhacker. Um, she was also a good shot. Well, speaking of good shots, um, Annie Oakley and Buffalo Bill Cody, what were her relationships, if any, with them? Okay, Calamity was, I think she would have loved to, well, she wouldn't have loved to perform in actuality with the Wild West show, but she loved the concept of it. But she didn't like any form of discipline, you know, or being told what to do and when to do it. So she never performed with the show, and there were um, rumors about her performing or supposed to be performing but never actually doing it um, with lesser Wild West shows. But Cody, you know, claimed that he was a friend of hers. She was back east in 1901 at the Pan American Exposition in Buffalo briefly, just for a few weeks, um, and left and um, didn't have enough money to get all the way, you know, back west. And Cody claims that he gave her the money when he came out to the Pan American Exposition, gave her the money for her train ticket to get back west. Um, so Cody, you know, wanted his name attached to hers. But beyond that, I don't think they had, you know, any relationship. He just... He liked the sense of being her of being her benefactor, but she was you know a very different kind of person than Annie Oakley, who was you know extremely self disciplined, actually not western at all. She was from east of the Mississippi, and Annie Oakley was always her entire life tried to present this uh sort of you know little girl image um but they they never met i i like I enjoy imagining the meeting, um, but they never did actually meet. 
One of the things that the Deadwood television show seemed to have gotten right was its portrayal of Calamity Jane as an alcoholic. She liked to drink, and she drank a lot. She was an incredible drinker. As I said, her mother was an alcoholic, and she was you know, definitely an alcoholic. And I think one of the things that killed her was, was cirrhosis because um, she had a, a lot of symptoms of it. Um, and she was noted for her drinking. There was a saloon in Wyoming that in a town where she um, hung around for a few months um, that started calling whiskey calamity water because she was so noted, you know, for coming in and drinking whiskey. And later in her life, she just rode the trains all the time. And she'd get off, go into a town, go to a bar and drink. Um, she was uh, famous for howling like a coyote when she was drunk. Um, she was arrested and spent a lot of nights in jail um, for drinking. I mean, she she was a really serious drinker. I mean, when she went to Cary, South Dakota, when she was dying, and she knew she was going there to die, she got off the train there, and the first thing she did was go into a saloon and start drinking, but then she got so sick that they had to carry her out and take her to a hotel. I mean, drinking was, you know, quite popular in the West at that time especially, but she w- she was an inc- uh, she drank constantly. You said she was 52 when she died? She was probably 52. If she, I mean, she she died on August 1st, 1903. Um, so if she was actually born in 1852, when she said she was, yeah, she was only 50, 52 years old. And she'd been pretty sick, or quite sick, the last couple of years of her life. Um, she was actually on a train in Montana uh, two years earlier and got so sick, that people helped her off the train and she was taken to what was known as a poor farm, which was a place where people who were destitute went, you know, basically to die. Um, but she left three days later because she couldn't stand it there and hung on for a couple more years. Um, but, yeah, she, she was just 52 years old. She was buried next to Wild Bill Hickok, right? She was. Um, and if you, go to the, if you go to Mount Moriah Cemetery, it's wonderful because you know, can stand in front of, of her grave and, and of Wild Bill. And um, there are two stories about why she was buried there. One is that on her deathbed, um, she asked to be buried next to Wild Bill, which could very well be true. And the other is that um, she was her funeral arrangements were taken care of by a, a group in Deadwood that were, the members were people who had, you know, been there in 1876 and 1877 when it was, you know, the place to be if you were looking, you know, to get rich. And so the other story is that it was their their idea to to bury her by Wild Bill. Her her, um, cemetery plot is wonderful. So, yes, she she is buried next to him, which I think would have made her very happy. Um, I will say that Hickok's family never really approved of the association of him uh, with Calamity Jane. And in the early 20th century, when the the movie The Plainsman was being made, and it, there was, it was going to feature the imagined romance between Wild Bill and 
and Calamity, um, they wrote to the director, you know, and expressed their fury that their ancestor would be associated, you know, with this disreputable woman. <laughs> <laughs> Don't some people uh, believe that part of the reason she was buried next to him uh, was kind of a practical joke? Uh, poor Wild Bill wanted nothing to do with her when he was alive, and now he's forced to spend eternity next to her. <laughs> <laughs> it's a great story, isn't it? <laughs> And, and and she and um I would say at this point in history she's probably the dominant figure in their relationship too you know um yeah it, it it's it's um I think it's one of the great ironies <laughs> <laughs> did, did she ever get married uh did did she ever have children well that's another good question um she certainly you know took she took up with uh, various men that she would stay with, um, you know, anywhere from a couple of months to, you know, off and on for a couple of years. And she always referred to them as as her husband. But most probably, she never married any of them. It was very uh, common at the time for women to refer to men as their husbands when they were what we would now call, you know, their partners. So it's questionable whether she was ever, you know, legally married. And there were, you know, four four or five men that she took up with for a while. One of them was actually an abuser, this guy, William Steers, who um, she actually, you know, called the sheriff's office or went to the sheriff's office for a couple of times. One, one time he tried to stab her, and then another time he tried to, like, beat her up uh, with a wrench. And it's also questionable whether she had any children she when she came back to Deadwood um, at the end of 1895 she took the train in and she was with um, a nine-year-old girl named Jessie um, who she you know referred to as her daughter so it may have been her daughter she brought her actually she was going to put her in, uh, wanted to enroll her in a school um, in a nearby town in Sturgis so it it might have been her daughter but there's no mention of her ever having a daughter, although there's one vague mention of her once having a son who never, you know, has never appeared in anything. Um, but it was also fairly common then for people to sort of unofficially adopt other people's children. It was like when Calamity, you know, left Salt Lake City when she was 15 and she had a younger brother and younger sister, and they were left, you know, somewhere with some other family in, in Wyoming. Um, so this, you know, it might have been her daughter or it might have been somebody who she was taking care of, who she referred to as her daughter. Um, so it's another one of those things that there's, Absolutely, you know, there's no way of knowing, and there were no birth certificates, you know, um, back then. So there were no official records of anything. And she did pick up Jesse at some point a couple years later, and went off with her, and then was never seen with her again. Um, so she probably left her with another woman or another family. So it's just, you know, it's. Um, I don't think anybody's ever come forward and said that they were Calamity Jane's daughter, although actually I wouldn't bet on that because people will say anything. Except for that one woman in the 40s, right? 
Right. Who said, who said she was, yeah, uh, Hickok and, and Calamity Jane's daughter. Although she would have been, you know, way too old to be Jesse, um, in 1895, because she said she, she says she was born, you know, in 77, shortly after, you know, months after Hickok was killed. Um, so yeah, it's, it's another one of those mysteries that will never, will never be solved. Right. So there have been so many portrayals of Calamity Jane in television and film. Are there any that particularly stand out for you, uh, either for their ridiculousness <laughs> or their historical accuracy? Well, I have to say that I um, enjoyed them all, with the possible exception of Jane Russell, who was, I don't know if you've ever ever saw her. She's this quite, you know, buxom, sex symbol kind of woman. But um, the the person who I actually most like is Calamity Jane uh, is Angelica Houston um, in the movie Buffalo Girls um, because she's so serious and tough and tough. Um, and I think the toughness is what's missing in a lot of portrayals because Calamity, you know, had a lot of problems, you know, including her alcoholism, most of all. But she was, above all things, you know, tough. Um, so I, I especially like the, the Angelica Houston portrayal. But there have been just almost constant portrayals of Calamity since, 18, since 1878. So she, she's kind of amazing how she's held on you know, in the public imagination. So for people who want to learn more about you, learn about your book, where can we direct them? Um, I would go to the Amazon website, um, and you can go to stampedebooks.com or searchingforcalamity.com. Perfect. Well, this has been just great. Thank you for your time today. Fantastic. Did I do okay? <laughs> yes, absolutely. You did great. Again, I've been speaking to Linda Jacoby. She is the author of Searching for Calamity, The Life and Times of Calamity Jane. This has been another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast, broadcasting to every dark and cobwebbed corner of the world. I'm Eric Rivenis, and have a safe tomorrow. Hello, my name is Matt host of the Pirate History Podcast. Pirates rank among the most mythologized and romanticized of all historical figures. It can become easy to forget that pirates were real people that had real-world concerns. If you like tales of high seas adventure, daring do, and also want to learn more about who Blackbeard supported to be king, you can learn more about all of that at the Pirate History Podcast.